If you lust for the world's pleasures, if you keep looking back to Egypt, I talk with Christians all the time that struggle with that. It seems like they always want to go back and they're lusting for the pleasures of the world, the things of the world. And I remind them, remember that there's bondage back there, there's captivity back there. Welcome to Under the Fig Tree. Under the Fig Tree is a verse-by-verse study taught by Pastor Jeff Figs of Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We are currently studying through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Jeff. And the people would gather there in Jerusalem for this week-long celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was almost like a week-long campout is what it was. Because people would come to Jerusalem and they would set up these little booths, these little tabernacles, almost like a little tent. And they would sleep there for a week. And the fathers would tell their children how their forefathers slept under the stars for 40 years. How God provided for them and protected them and then eventually would bring them into the land of promise. And when they celebrated that feast at that time, it tells us there in John's Gospel that on the last day of the feast, as the people are gathered there, see what would take place on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, as they were there celebrating the feast, is the people would have these jars of waters. And they would pour out the water on the Temple Mount pavements. And what it did was it would commemorate, they would remember how God provided water for them during that wilderness experience. And then when they came into the Promised Land, that no longer did water come from that rock because they came into a land that had rivers and waters and a land flowing with milk and honey. But as they're pouring out that water, commemorating God's provision of water, that's when Jesus stood up. And he would cry out to the multitudes. He would say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow torrents of living water. Or speaking of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was speaking to them about, if you thirst, come to me. So the question this morning is, do you thirst? Do you thirst? Do you thirst in your heart? Do you thirst in your soul? Jesus says, come to me and drink. To the woman of Samaria, there in John chapter 4, as they're at Jacob's well, Jesus began to talk to her about living water. And he would say that if you drink of the water that I have to give to you, you'll never thirst again. But if you drink of this water, the water of the world, Jacob's will, you're going to be thirsty again. And you see, what can happen is, as we are thirsty, so many people go to the world to drink and drink and drink, and they're always thirsty in their hearts and in their souls. And what Jesus is saying to us is, I have living water to give to you, to be refreshed and renewed, to be satisfied and fulfilled. He would say the same thing in John chapter 6, as he said to the multitudes, as they came looking for Jesus after he fed the 5,000. And Jesus would say to them, you're only coming to me because you're hungry physically again, but you need to look to the one who can provide that food that comes from heaven. Our fathers ate of the manna in the desert. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And so the people said, give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
And he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So God supernaturally provided all of the needs of the Israelites during that wilderness wandering, and yet in spite of all his provision and his blessing, we read in verse 5, but with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now you remember, if you were with us in our study of Numbers, in the beginning of the book of Numbers there was a census. There's a second census at the end of the book of Numbers. But that first census taken at the beginning of the book of Numbers that we see that all the men that were able to take up the sword were numbered. And they numbered them from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. There was like over 600,000 men. That's why we believe there was about 2.5 to 3 million people that came out of Egypt. But of all those, those men that could take up the sword, all those hundreds of thousands that left Egypt, do you realize that only two of them would enter into the promised land? And the reason was is because of their disobedience. The reason was it was because of their unbelief. You see, God brought the children of Israel to Mount Sinai after the crossing of the Red Sea. And we see that God would give them the law. He made a covenant with his people. He also would tell Moses and give instructions to Moses concerning the tabernacle how to construct the tabernacle, the furnishings of the tabernacles. The priestly ministry was instituted at that time as well. That's what you read about in the book of Leviticus. So here it was in the second year of their exodus, the children of Israel, they're ready. They're ready physically. They're ready spiritually as God has given them the law. He's instituted the temple sacrifices or the tabernacle sacrifices. And so they were ready to go. So he says, go up to the border of the promised land. And that's what they did. They went up to Kadesh Barnea, there on the border of the land. And so Moses at that time sent in 12 spies. The Lord had been telling them, I'm going to give you this land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to drive out the inhabitants that are there dwelling in the land. And so Moses would send in those spies to spy out the land for 40 days. Those spies come back. They come back with all this fruit and grapes that were huge. They had carrying this, this bunch of grapes on a rod between them on their shoulders. And they came back to the camp at Kadesh Barnea. And they said, look at these grapes. You've never ever seen anything like it. And it truly is a land, a good land, flowing with milk and honey. And the people said, all right, that's great. Well, they, they should have believed that God, you know, said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. They shouldn't have been surprised by that. But then 10 of the spies said something. They said, even though it's a good land, there's a problem. And the problem is this. There's giants in the land. And there's huge cities and walls that go up to heaven. And these giants are big guys, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And the people, their hearts melted at that time. And the children of Israel cried out and said, we can't go into the promised land. We can't go up against these giants. We can't take these great cities. We'll be devoured. But it was to the spies, Caleb and Joshua, that quieted the people down and said, listen, God has delivered us from the Egyptians. He drowned the Egyptian army, the chariots in the Red Sea, and he's promised us this land. So let's go in and let's take possession of it and we'll gobble up those giants. We'll eat them like bread. But the people wouldn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. They said, we can't. We're going to be defeated our little ones, our children are going to die there in the promised land. Even though they had the promise of God over and over given to them, that I'm going to bless you. 
and I'm going to prosper you in the promised land, and I'm going to drive out those inhabitants, and you're going to have victory in the land. They didn't believe God's provision and protection and promise that he desired to give to them. Matter of fact, it reads that they went to their tents and they said, God hates us. When God, in fact, said, I carried you through this wilderness in my arms. The psalmist writes in 106, verse 24, that the children of Israel, they despised the pleasant land and did not believe his word and did not heed the voice of the Lord. They began to blame Moses again. Why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? It would have been better if we would have stayed in Egypt. Listen, a tactic to the enemy is this. He will whisper in your ear, go back to Egypt, go back to the world. Go back to the old hangouts. Go back to the old ways of living. Go back to the old way of thinking. Go back to Egypt. And that's constantly what the children of Israel were saying. Yet they forgot the bondage they were in. They forgot the slavery they were in. The sin that they were involved in. And there in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, it tells us about how the spies came back, 10 of them, and said, we can't go into the promised land. And the people joined in with that. Though it says that they were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb at that time because Joshua and Caleb were the only two that were saying, we can go into the promised land. That all of them, that generation, because they continued to reject God and because of sin and disobedience and unbelief, that they, they died out there in the wilderness. And it was only Joshua and Caleb that would go in. And the little ones that you said are going to die in the promised land, they're actually going to prosper in the promised land. And it would be at that time that the largest and longest funeral service ever began. For the next 40 years, as God said, you're going to be in this wilderness for 40 years till this generation dies out here that the carcasses of the children of Israel were spread all throughout the wilderness. And that's why he says here in verse 5, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. It's something that the author of Hebrews would recognize as well, as we read in Hebrews chapter 3, that the children of Israel, because of their sin and disobedience, did not enter into the rest of the Lord. They did not enter into the rest of the promised land. So he uses the children of Israel in their wilderness experience as an example of entering into God's rest and an example of entering into the fullness of God's blessing that it has for you and for me. And so we read in verse 6 that, as he says, these things became our examples. So all these things that happened to them at that time, the wandering in the wilderness is recorded to us, not to just give us an historical account of what happened, but for us to give us practical illustration for personal application. These are examples to us. We are to learn lessons of what can happen to us to disqualify us as we journey through life, as we run our race. So now, quickly, what we're going to see here is Paul's going to give us five things that we are to watch out for which will cause us to be disqualified. Remember he talked about that? Chapter 9, verse 27. That will disqualify us from entering into that promised land. That is your life being filled and enriched and prosperous in the best sense of the word and being used in all the ways that the Lord desires and being all that the Lord wants you to be. He says, here are some things that will stumble you. Five things he's going to list here that can sidetrack you. Now here's the thing. Do you realize 
Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2 tells us, when the children of Israel were out Mount Sinai, they were to go northward and they were to go to the promised land, Kadesh Barnea, the, the border of the promised land. That journey was just 11 days. When God said, go into the promised land, in 11 days they should have been entering into the promised land. It took 40 years. You talk about being sidetracked. Talk about not entering into what God has for us. And so this is powerful lessons for us here, given to us those things that we need to watch out as we are running the race that is set before us. Number one, for you who like to jot down notes, Paul says in verse 6, that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Watch out for lust. The children of Israel lusted there in the wilderness. Paul here making reference to Numbers chapter 11. The people were complaining about God's provision, manna that fell from heaven. They complained, and it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. Do you understand that when you complain, when I complain, the Lord hears it, and he's displeased with it? And so here they were complaining because they lusted for meat. They said, who's going to give us this meat to eat? They were lusting for the pleasures of Egypt again, what they had in Egypt. And we as Christians, it is not a good place to be at all when we lust for the things of the world. Again, remember, Egypt is a picture of the world. He has brought us out of Egypt, hasn't he? And one of the things that will give you a barren, dry, spiritual experience is that if you lust for the world's pleasures, if you keep looking back to Egypt, I talk with Christians all the time that struggle with that. It seems like they always want to go back and they're lusting for the pleasures of the world, the things of the world. And I remind them, remember that there's bondage back there, there's captivity back there. And what the children of Israel forgot about and what we can forget about, they forgot about the Egyptian taskmasters, whips on their backs, how they were under the hot blistering sun in bondage. And they were free from all of that, but they lusted. They wanted the meat that they had. They weren't satisfied with God's provision. So God said, you want meat? Then you're going to get meat. So quails came flying into the camp, as you read in Numbers 11. And they came flying in by the, by the millions. And the people here are two million people or so. They're gathering quails all day, it says, into all night and into the next day. They had baskets of quails. They're laying out the quails, and they began to eat the quail. And as the meat was in between their teeth, a plague came. And many of them died in that plague. And they ended up calling that place Kerbath Hata'aba, which means the graves of craving. Listen, any of us lust for the pleasures or the things of the world, it's going to bring a plague upon your spiritual life. He says, watch out. Don't get all tripped up and stumbled as you lust after evil things if you keep looking back and desiring the world. Secondly, verse 7, and do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul making reference to Exodus 32. You know the story. The children of Israel there at Mount Sinai as Moses is up on the mountain, he's receiving the law of God. He's gone for a while. The people said, where'd he go? Let's, let's, we don't know what's happened to the man of Moses. Let's make a golden calf, and we'll worship the golden calf. And they had a great big party, and they danced around the golden calf. They rose up to play. And when Paul uses that phrase there, it doesn't mean that they were playing ring around the rosy. They rose up to play. It's referring to 
the idolatry and immorality that they were involved in. And so idolatry is simply anything, as we know, that has priority over your love and relationship and devotion to the Lord. Idolatry can take on the form of money. It can be your car. It can be drugs. It can be your career. It can be a hobby. It can be your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Anything or anybody that has supreme significance and is a priority over your love and relationship and devotion with the Lord, then it becomes an idol. So ask yourself, what motivates you? Truly, what motivates you to get up in the morning? Where is your adoration? What captures your heart, your attention? What is it that you have that you just can't do without? Then it can be an idol if it has priority over the Lord in your life. So that's the second thing he says, watch out. Third, thirdly, the third thing that will cause you to remain in the wilderness, that will hinder you in your race, verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. So the third thing listed here to watch out for is immorality. Again, committing that sin when they rose up to play. But here we see that specifically he's making reference to Numbers chapter 25. And that is when Balaam, who was supposed to curse the children of Israel, could not curse them. So he says to Balak, the king of Moab, that, that wanted to curse the children of Israel, he says, this is what you do. You tell all your young women of Moab to get all gussied up, go down into the camp of the children of Israel, to introduce idolatry, and also to seduce the young men of Israel. And so that's what they did. And they committed fornication, and the wrath of God was kindled against them, and they were smitten by a plague, and 23,000 died in one day. And then the fourth thing that we're to watch out for, in verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpent. The main point Paul makes here is that the children of Israel tested God's faithfulness, his provision, his love. So Numbers chapter 21, as they were tempting the Lord, they said, you brought us out here into the wilderness to die. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and the people began to die. We tempt the Lord when we suggest that he will fail in his promises. The children of Israel back then showed a serious lack of faith and we can fall into the same trap when we question his goodness or suggest that he is unwilling to work in our life. And then lastly, fifthly, verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. The last thing that Paul mentions here is murmuring and complaining. Now I know that none of you ever murmur and complain, and neither do I. Actually, we love to complain. And can you imagine Moses' ministry? For 40 years, he had to hear the murmuring and the complaining of two and a half million people. Now in Numbers chapter 16, Korah, Dathan, some of the guys, the leaders of the children of Israel, came to Moses. They began to complain against him and his brother Aaron, who was the first high priest, said, you guys take too much upon yourself. Moses, Aaron, you think you're really special, don't you? Well, we're special too. We should make decisions. We should be able to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And we read that at that time, as they were complaining and murmuring, and it began to spread throughout the camp, that the ground opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and those leaders that had come. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Do all things, not some things, do all things without complaining and murmuring. We like to complain about our jobs. We like to complain about our neighbors. We like to complain about 
anything. We love to complain about the church against brothers and sisters. We even complain about how hard it is to be a Christian. Boy, is it hard to be a Christian, we complain. And you know what really is hard? I'll tell you what really is hard is not being a Christian. Because you have no direction. You have no peace. You're just involved in a lot of junk. You have no real purpose in life. That's what's hard. And folks, I think there's too much belly aching that goes on in the church today. That's just my own opinion. Too much belly aching that all of us can do. And when the children of Israel didn't get what they wanted, they murmured and complained bitterly and continually, and God didn't like it. And Paul says, watch out for all those things. And then as we finish, we'll be finished in a few minutes. Verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. These things were written as an example to us. And that word example here is very interesting in the Greek. It means to leave an impression, an imprint. That is, these examples should make a permanent impression on you, and the word admonition means to build up or to set into thinking, to change one's behavior. In other words, these things are written as examples for our admonition to change the way that we think and behave, the way that we live. Therefore, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Take heed, pay attention. They say that you can learn from experience or from mistakes. But it doesn't have to be our own mistakes. And Paul is saying here, you can learn from their experience. You can learn from their mistakes and what they did. So you don't do the same thing. And you Corinthian believers take heed, gain understanding. These things that we just talked about will cause you to be plagued and tripped up and bitten and swallowed up and disqualified as you murmur and complain and commit sin and walk in unbelief and go after the things of the world. So God records these things that would happen to the children of Israel for us so that we would gain understanding and lessons so we can run our race to finish strong, to finish well. I want to leave you with this thought. It is interesting that that word example is the same Greek word that is used in John chapter 20, verse 25, when it talks about the prints that are in Jesus' hands and in his feet. May we never forget this, Christian, what Jesus has done for us, that he has freed us from Egypt, and from the penalty and the bondage of sin. And he doesn't want any of us out there in the wilderness experience doing laps around Mount Sinai. He desires for us to enter into his rest. Joshua says at the end, when they took the land and they received their inheritance, that there was rest in the land. Again, what is rest? As you come into the joy, that joy unspeakable. You may go through rough waters in life and difficult times, but the thing is, underneath it all, you're going to have a joy a joy that's in your heart, the joy of the Lord. And, and to have that peace that passes understanding. You may not understand everything that's taken place in your life, but you have a peace that passes understanding, strength and wisdom and direction and his protection. And you're going to see God showing himself strong on your behalf. You just have this, this quiet confidence in your heart that, Lord, that you're with me and your promises are true and I'm going to stand on those promises and I'm just going to rest in that. 
And it comes as you trust in his word, believe his word, know that God loves you. He wants the very best for you. You'll enter into that rest and you keep your eyes on the Lord and you run strong because Jesus loved you so much he died for you. Look at those prints in his hands. Look what he did for you. And if he loves you, then to go to the cross and die for you, don't you know that he loves you now? And he wants you to run your race, and he will enable you as you yield to him, believe in him, and walk with him. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Listen, in this race that you run, run, but you run, and you keep focused on the Lord, and you put aside these things and watch out for them. And don't be like the children of Israel that did not enter into what God has for them. God has so much for us. He has so much. He will do more with your life. Listen, if you get anything, He will do more in your life than you can ever do in your own. A life of spiritual richness and blessing as we run our race, as we run our race that is set before us. Thank you for joining us on Under the Fig Tree. If you would like a copy of today's study, please call us and ask for the message with today's date. Our phone number is 970-330-1717. That number again, 970-330-1717. If you prefer, you can write us at 2602 West 27th Street, Greeley, Colorado, 80634. You can also visit us online at ccgreeley.com. Under the Fig Tree is brought to you by Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We invite you to join with us for our Sunday morning services at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. and our Wednesday evening service at 7 p.m. Please join with us next time as we continue to study the Bible together on Under the Fig Tree.